I don't know about you, but I live in a culture that is so hungry for a redemptive narrative that billions of dollars will be spent last weekend and this week to watch Iron Man bring conclusion to that big redemptive story of the Avengers. But we have a better story, yes? A true story, a deeper narrative. Yet how in Christian Bible Bite land can we see that strong narrative, especially as it emerges from the Old Testament? We do so by sitting under the great teaching of Bible scholars that also have hearts for people. Dr. Carol Kaminsky, professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. We are delighted that you're here to ground us, to teach us. We're all ears. Please come, and I want to pray for her. Lord, thank you that your will is done in our pulpits, in our classrooms, in our teachings, in every church every week. But thank you, Lord, also your will is done in the academy where the Spirit and the Word are brought together. And we pray that your Holy Spirit and your Word be proclaimed clearly tonight and in all the teachings that Dr. Carol Kaminsky gives us. God bless her. And open our ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, what a, what a wonderful hymn that was. I mean, we were ready to like leave and like go out, wasn't it? Mighty Fortress and beautiful. Well, it's great to be here again. And uh, I, I, last year I couldn't come. I think I had like a women's retreat on. So I know Troy contacted me earlier. <laughs> Before he booked in anything else, and so it really is. I loved being here last time. It's a great uh, delight to be here. So we are going to be talking about uh, Chronicles over these next couple of days. And so the question is, well, why Chronicles? Uh, I was at a women's, uh, we had a women's uh, breakfast at our church uh, just on Saturday, and a lady knew I taught at the seminary, and she was asking me about... Um, just a little bit about what I'm doing and so forth. And I said, I'm you know, coming to retreat. I'm speaking on Chronicles. And she said, oh, the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> I thought, oh, we have got a bit to go here. And I oh, no, no, Chronicles in the Bible, you know. <laughs> She's like, oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, with this vague look of like, <laughs> some of you may be feeling the same way. But uh, so I'm, I'm writing a, a commentary in Zondervan's Story of God series in Chronicles. Now, um, last time I was here, I was speaking in Genesis, and usually when I talk to people, they say, oh, what's your area of research? And I say the Genesis, and they go, oh, you know. So, but when I say I'm working in Chronicles, it's kind of like, well, that was a conversation stopper, you know. <laughs> and the next thing that usually comes out is like, oh, isn't that the book that has all the genealogies in it? Because I love genealogies. I worked in Genesis, so I'm like, yeah, yeah genealogies. You know? So, and even actually Tremper Longman, was, who was the senior editor for the series, was like surprised that I didn't choose, he had already chosen Genesis, so that was out of, I tried to negotiate, but he wasn't moving with that. Um, but I had other options, and I chose Chronicles. And he goes, wow, that really surprised me. Why Chronicles? And I love the book of Chronicles because uh, it is all about worship. It is all about seeking the face of God. And so what do I want to do over our next six sessions is I want to really look at some of the big themes of the book of Chronicles and, and really, my prayer for you is that this would be a time of refreshment and a time of renewal uh, in terms of your own spiritual journey and that you would come away saying, you know what, I, I, I want to do some more reading in Chronicles. So let me just set the scene for a few minutes. And tonight we're going to be looking at some of the opening chapters, but I want to really set the scene of the book and why is it, how is it that Chronicles connects with our context today? Well, it, you don't need me to tell you that the church is changing and the culture is changing and we're becoming a post-Christendom context and there are many challenges, therefore, facing us within the church. 
uh, as one example of George Marsden's book, Understanding Fundamentalism and Evangelicalism, written a number of years ago, very helpful book. But what he does mention at the outset about the changing values, and he said everyone not only knew the um, Ten Commandments, but they held those values. And he mentions about a grade textbook in the early 20th century, McGuffey's um, Eclectic Reader. Some of you may have known this, right? This is Australia. We didn't have it. But he said, here's some of the topics, the goodness of God, religion, the only basis of society, the hour of prayer, the Bible, the best of the classics. Think about that. No excellence without labor. And he notes that between 1826 and 1920, they estimated that there were 120 million readers were sold for the use in public schools. 122 million of them. That's not the world in which we're living today. Um, Todd Bolsinger's book, Canoeing the Mountains, Christian Leadership in Uncharted Territory, is also starting to introduce some of these same themes. And he says, I've got a copy on my desk, 1963, LA Times, that has a list of Bible readings for the coming week. And what he says is in chapter 1, if Western societies have become post-Christian mission fields, how can traditional churches become then missionary churches? And he said we need a community of transformation. And this is what he says. At the heart of this book is the conviction that congregational leadership in a post-Christendom context is about communal transformation for mission. In a post-Christendom world that has become a mission field right outside the sanctuary door, Christian community is about gathering and forming a pe people and spiritual transformation is about both individual and corporate growth so that they together participate in Christ's mission to establish the kingdom. And he says on page 45, personally... It would require me to embody the transformation needed and invite others to join it. Let me just repeat that. It's going to require me to embody the transformation needed and invite others to join me. And I think the book of Chronicles is all about transformation and about spiritual transformation. He says we have to learn a new way of leading that begins with our own transformation. So let me just share a few things about Chronicles as we start to set the context for it, why it is so relevant for our context today. Well, the chronicler, and we don't know who the author is, uh, some used to think it was Ezra, but we're not sure now, but the chronicler is writing in a time after the exile when they go back into Jerusalem. Well, why is this so important? Of course, 586 BC, you have the Babylonians coming into Jerusalem. They destroy the city. They destroy the temple. God's people go into Babylon for 70 years. Then they come back, 539 under King Cyrus. They come back. They rebuild the temple. But the province of Judah, Yehud, is this little province in this massive Persian empire. The glory days of the monarchy are well and truly over. There was some hope in Zerubbabel, past his time, and think about what is taking place at this time. The chronicler is living with this little, little kingdom with this massive Persian empire. They're no longer the majority. They're no longer ruled by their own kings. Now they are living under the minor is a minority in a larger, successful culture. And so what happens is the chronicler's got to rethink what does it mean to live as the people of God in a new context. And we think the context is changing. Try living during his time in the Chronicles time with the significance of the changes that have been taking place. 
And here's what's really interesting. When I hear about, I'm involved a lot in speaking at churches, and when I hear about our contemporary context, a couple of things I think are taking place. One of the things is that there tends to be a little bit of a sense of like uh, Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, a little bit of a retreat, kind of we're in the dark ages, let's retreat. That's one of the things I'm hearing. The other thing I'm hearing is kind of maybe a bit less Bible. People are not so interested anymore. And let's make things a bit more culturally relevant. What... What does the Chronicler do? 65 chapters, approximately 64 chapters, of retelling the story of Israel. You see, when you don't know who you are, you don't forget your story. You've got to go back to the story and you've got to get your identity in the narrative of the history of redemption. Think about it. This is one of the longest books in the Old Testament. The level, and not only is he going to go back to the story of kings, going through the history of the kingship, but he doesn't even go back to David or to Solomon or even to Saul at the start of kingship. He, that's too small for him. He wants to go back to Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 1 because Chronicles begins with Adam and ends with King Cyrus. My two C's for Chronicles, creation and Cyrus, bookends. Creation, Adam and Cyrus. The chronicler is writing from this time period and he's going back to look at the whole story of Israel. And he is a theologian and he is interpreting the word of God for his time. He is looking at the books of Samuel and Kings. About 50% comes from Samuel and Kings. But he is not simply looking at the history. He's not telling another history. He is retelling the story in light of the contemporary context. And he wants his readers to learn from it. To know how to live in the new context in which they are living. And I actually think Chronicles is a really important, these are important books for the church today. Well, Chronicles has tended to be neglected in Old Testament scholarship because if you want to really know about what real history is about, you go to Samuel or you go to Kings. But Chronicles, he's kind of written later. The real history is in Samuel and Kings. Of course, we're finding out that how incorrect that is. I'll be sharing one or two things as we go along, that the chronicler, his insights into historical facts, which are not in Samuel and Kings, testifies to the historicity of the material. So that's one part, Old Testament scholars. Uh, in Protestant, well, we're not so sure about Chronicles because it feels a little bit too Catholic in places, in terms of liturgy and, you know... Um, temple and priestly and, I don't know, incense or whatever else that you want to see in there. And so Chronicles has been neglected. Uh, one scholar, his name is De Vries, says of Chronicles after working in it, it's one of the richest minds of spirituality in all of scripture. And that, I think, is my testimony as well. So, uh, Lots that it has to teach us. Let me just talk a little bit about where we're headed in terms of our topics, if anyone wants to read up about it, in terms of the specific chapters. So tonight, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack a little bit uh, the first nine chapters, but I just want to give us a big picture to say, why on earth does the Chronicle go back to Adam? What is he saying about the identity of the people of God, and what difference does that make for us? So we're going to look at kind of that big picture, the sweep. What are the genealogies all about? Who's in them? Why are they there? 
Tomorrow morning, we're going to look at the transition from Saul to David. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, we have one chapter on Saul, and then it moves into David. But when David is anointed king, he doesn't become king immediately. He's got all kinds of years where he's fleeing for his life from Saul. And I'm going to be suggesting tomorrow morning that that is part of the call. That the call, when we think of the call to leadership, we think of anointing, coronation. Right? If I was God, anointed 1 Samuel 16, coronation should be the next chapter. That's how life works, isn't it? And in fact, we're going to see there are many years of difficulties of fleeing for his life until the time when God turns the kingdom over to David. It's in God's timing. And therefore, the whole narrative of David's life, all the suffering that happens in between, I'm going to suggest that's part of the call of leadership. And we have taken the wrong narrative because we have taken the great American dream narrative as the narrative for our own lives instead of the biblical narrative. And it's the wrong narrative. Mark Labberton has been talking about this in his book. He says we have the promised land narrative. And so I want us to unpack the leadership narrative of David tomorrow morning because I want to look at the role of suffering and the help that God provides in the midst of it. A mighty fortress is our God. That's David's testimony. And it shapes the kind of leader he is and so I want to suggest at those difficult times, if some of you are coming in that you feel like, gosh, I've just been through years of this, I want to suggest that it's part of the call, but also that God is providing help in the midst of it. And we'll see that wonderful passage, and the Spirit of God wants to communicate to David that God is helping you. I also want to look, as we think about, we'll look at tonight, the whole mission of God. We're also going to see, though, that what else happens with God's anointed is the nations rise up against God's anointed. So God is calling Israel to be a blessing to the nations. It's something we've focused a lot on in the church, rightly so. But I also want to talk about the fact that the nations are rising against God's people. It's both and. And we need to be able to discern which one it is at what season of time. So we'll pick this up uh, in a couple of places in the story, but it happens with David. And David at the end of his life, in terms of his life being sold over to God and why. We'll also look at tomorrow morning, we'll look at Davidic covenant and why this is so central to understand not only the whole book of First and Second Chronicles, but the whole kingship narrative where it's moving and the Davidic covenant in one Chronicles 17, the fact that the promises are given to David and his seed, that's why the chronicler spends so much time on the genealogies, because he knows God has made promises. And he knows, in spite of the fact that there is no king, and in spite of the fact that they're under the Persians, and in spite of the fact it looks like a day of small things, that God will fulfill what he has promised. So he's going to put genealogies in there because the promise is given to David and his seed. And he's showing his thoughtful and time-consuming focus on genealogies is because he believes in the promises of God. And he's 
providing it for us. And we're going to see there's one aspect of the genealogy that's only in Chronicles that is critical for the movement forward of the promise after 586 BC. So, David tomorrow morning. Uh, then we're going to pick up King Jehoshaphat. One of my favorite, uh, sorry, Solomon before that. Solomon, we're doing Solomon before Jehoshaphat. Looking at King Solomon, his building of the temple. And I want to, especially when we look at Solomon, want to look at the fact that he's not only the king who builds the temple, but the central role of prayer for the people of God. And we'll pick up that prayer when God answers his prayer and says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face, pray that I will hear from heaven. We're going to unpack because that is a key passage for the whole of the book of Chronicles. It is not the prayer of Jabez, by the way. <laughs> There's a reason we gravitate to the prayer of Jabez. Because it says, bless me and free me from pain. That's not the dominant prayer in Chronicles. But we'll pick that up because it's in the genealogies. So... Solomon and the role of prayer and for us as leaders of humbling ourselves and what does that mean and seeking God's face. And we'll look at the outworking of that that comes up later in Hezekiah. Our next king we're picking up is King Jehoshaphat. He's one of my favorite characters. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm choosing passages that are unique to Chronicles that help us get a th lean in to the theology of what he's wanting to say. Jehoshaphat is going to make some really bad mistakes early on that will shape his leadership in the days to come. And we want to lean in to Jehoshaphat because when the enemies are coming against him, it's not just what you do as a leader, it's what you don't do as a leader. And Jehoshaphat is going to be a king who does not call up his army. And we have to lean into that to say, what does that mean? What kind of leadership is God wanting from us when you have a king who has his army stationed in Jerusalem and he doesn't call them up when the enemy's 30 miles away? But instead... He's going to lean in and press into God. And so we're going to talk about that for leadership, King Jehoshaphat and what God does. And then the last king we're looking at is King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah is a king who initiates major religious reforms and talk about sometimes there's times in leadership when you've got to clean out the old before the new comes in. And so Hezekiah is going to be charged with that and... When he celebrates Passover, he's going to invite the northern tribes in. Huge implications for the unity of the people of God. Because the northern tribes, just a few years earlier, had attacked the southern kingdom. They were their absolute enemies. And Hezekiah is going to invite them, and this is pleasing to God. So King Hezekiah, and then at, that'll be our last session, and when we finish Hezekiah, I'm just going to lead us to the end of the kingdom and talk about um, where this is all headed in terms of, well, I won't be able to help myself. By the time I get to Davidic covenant, we're going to be talking about Jesus, okay? <laughs> so, but it's leading us all, leading forward to the coming of the Messiah. So that's where we're headed, um, picking up the big picture of Chronicles uh, by looking at a window into these um, kings' lives. So, uh, 
1 Chronicles chapter 1. I'm not going to read set verses because of the sake of our time, but what I am going to do is give you big picture. First thing, just to notice, 1 Chronicles 1 to 9 is a whole lot of genealogies that are given all the way through in chapter 9, uh, all the way through into chapter 9. So all Israel was enrolled by genealogies. Behold, are they not written in the book of the kings? And Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon. Okay, So that means these first eight chapters are a whole series of genealogies. Why does he start this way? Where does he start? He starts with Adam in Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 5 goes from Adam through Seth to Noah. Ten generations, Genesis 5. He picks up the first ten generations just very quickly. Genesis 11, another genealogy that's going to lead us from Adam to Abraham. Why? He doesn't finish with Abraham. The book of Genesis goes to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. He does the same thing. He picks up these genealogies, chapter 2, to Israel. But his focus, unlike Genesis, which moves from Adam to Israel... His focus is on the line of Judah because God's plan for his creation is going to be fulfilled and realized in the line of Judah. I repeat that again. What happens in Judah with David in particular, is going to be the answer to the problems of the world. In other words, the story of Israel does not start with Israel. He sets it in a world context to show that God's plan for his kingdom through the line of Judah is going to impact the world, and it's set on the world stage. They're going to be separated from the world, but they are for the sake of the world. And this is actually brought out, this is brought out in Judah's genealogy that gets picked up in chapter 2, you start to see these are the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. There is an article by a guy called Canopus, and here's what's really interesting, and I'm going to just highlight a couple of key verses. In these genealogies in chapters 1 to 8, there are two central genealogies, Judah and Levi. Okay, Judah and Levi. This is, these are central to the whole book. The royal tribe of Judah and the priestly tribe of Levi. And in chapter 2, when he talks about the tribe of Judah, a scholar named Noppers, intermarriage, social complexity and ethnic diversity in the genealogy of Judah... Here's what he notices, and he has an extensive article. And he says that the line of Judah is more ethnically diverse than any genealogy. The How many sermons have you heard on that? Not too many, right? We think of ethnic, right? Chapter 2, verse 3, Judah has a Canaanite wife. Remember picking up Genesis chapter 38. He has a Canaanite wife. Chapter 2, verse 17, Abigail, sister of David, gives birth to Amas, and his father was Jether, the Ishmaelite. 
chapter 2, verse 34 to 35, descendants of Jeremiel, the daughter is going to be married to an Egyptian and the genealogy is 13 generations in length. 1 Chronicles 4.18, we have a reference to Egypt. We have in chapter 2, verse 3, and 4, verses 21 to 22, we have one of the descendants marrying a Moabite. And in fact, this article that has been written by this guy, Nopas, looks at intermarriage within the genealogy, and he says there are Ishmaelites, Arameans, Egyptians, Moabites. What is going on with that? He also notices that there are non-Israelite people who are being incorporated into Judah. This is what Scott Hahn says. The genealogies of the line of Judah include non-Israelites from groups such as the Canaanites, Ishmaelites, Arameans, Egyptians, Moabites, Calebites, Midianites, Jeremelites. I always like to put Vegemite in here. It just feels like it should go. But... <laughs> I do it all the time, the seven nations. <laughs> Every time my students are all like, do all that, you know, Gergesites, Jebusites, and... You know, everyone yells out, Vegemites, you know, so. Moabites, Calebites, Midianites, Jeremelites, Machathites, Kenanites, Kenites. What? What is going on here? Andy Stanley, in his, I don't know if you listen to any of his teachings at the moment, but he is recommending that we unhitch the church from the Old Testament. One of the things, uh, if you look at his work on covenants, he says the Old Covenant was exclusively Israelite. The New Covenant is open to all, to Gentiles. I'm like, hmm, what Bible has he been reading? The tribe of Judah is ethnically diverse. There is no such thing as a pure ethnic line. Just so you know, archaeologists have been doing this as well as they think about, because from the very beginning, it was always multi-ethnic. Abraham was called to be the father of many nations, a great multitude come out of Egypt, where they're multiplying in, in it's not in the promised land, it's in Egypt. And so this theme of Ethnic diversity is picked up in Judah's genealogy. One of the points here, and of course, Andy Stanley has missed the whole redemptive narrative that God calls Israel to be a blessing to the nations. So, first thing is, what have we got going on with the genealogies? Is we have the fact that we have ethnic diversity, social groups are being incorporated into the line of Judah. Why is this important? Because when we come to the Davidic covenant, we're going to find out that the line of Judah, that the throne, the kingdom, is identified with the kingdom of the Lord. So all the way back, way back in Chronicles, we have a multi-ethnic kingdom of God. How about that? So next point is I also want you to notice, think of the context. They are in Jerusalem... We've had the northern, remember the northern kingdom, 722 gets exiled. We have Judah and Benjamin in the south. They, 586, they go into exile. They come back, Judah and Benjamin, our two tribes. Who are the tribes in the first eight chapters? Twelve tribes. Why do we have the twelve tribes? Why not just, that would have been a lot shorter, why not just Judah and Benjamin? I mean, it's all over with the others, isn't it? Why not just Judah and Benjamin? So what do we have? We have all the tribes being represented in the opening genealogy and it's central to the chronicler's theology. 
the unity of the people of God. And so, God's call still stands. Hope for the unified people of God. And so there are references to these tribes, and that gets picked up. We're going to see when we come to King Hezekiah, when he celebrates Passover, he invites northerners, enemies at this point, to come and join them for a vision of the unified people of God. And so you have links within these chapters of this unified people and the term all Israel 22 times in the book of Chronicles. Next point we have. Again, I'm giving big themes rather than looking at specific verse just to give us the whole, the whole here. The next point just to be aware of as we start to look at it is the two major genealogies in chapters 1 to 8, two major genealogies in 1 to 8, is Judah and Levi. Okay, The tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi in 1 Chronicles 6 is Levi. And some have even suggested it's the center piece. Okay. So what does that mean? It means... We have the royal line, we have the king, and we have the priestly office as central to the opening chapters. Okay. Now, here's what's interesting as well. A couple of things here. First of all, when they come back from exile... And they rebuild the temple. Who rebuilds the temple? Zerubbabel. And who's the other one? Joshua. The king and the priest. Is it the priest's role normally to rebuild the temple? No. The king and the priest are working together. One of the themes we're going to look at in Chronicles is there's no solo leadership. Is that my... Oh, good. The king is not a solo leader. God appoints priests and Levites. He's also going to appoint counselors for the king. He's going to appoint prophets for the king. Worship leaders who the spirit comes upon who has a word for the king. So first thing is there is going to be a joint leadership here, not an individual leadership. But you also start to see the close working together of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Levi. Zerubbabel. And Joshua, when they come back, they both work together to rebuild the temple. That's all. And it's got references back to Solomon. Not only that, but the prophet Zechariah has a vision and he sees the royal crown put on the high priest. Now, the high priest doesn't wear a crown. He wears a turban. And it says a prophecy that the priest and the king, there's going to be a merging of the two offices. The opening genealogies are so showing the tight relationship between the king and the priest. And there are hints of this in the narrative itself. We're going to see this when David brings the ark into Jerusalem. He's wearing the linen ephod. He's wearing the linen garments like the Levi. What is David doing? 
because he is a priestly king. And he's going to be wearing the ephod, which is what the priest wears. So there are hints of this within the narrative, that there's a merging of the priest and the king. When Solomon gets anointed, in Kings, the priest anoints Solomon. In Chronicles, the people anoint them together as joint leadership. So there is going to be an emphasis on the priestly king role within Chronicles that, of course, is going to anticipate the work of Jesus being from the line of Judah, but also being the great high priest. So, quick summary. Where have we started where we're thinking about these chapters? So, Chronicles Genealogies, chapters 1 to 8, starts with Adam. The book ends with Cyrus. Multi-ethnic tribe of Judah that's going to give us hints of God's plan to bless the nations through the tribe of Judah. Multi-ethnic people of God. We also see in these opening genealogies that God has a plan for the unified people of God. All the tribes being represented. That's another theme that reverberates throughout. And in fact, there is reference to all Israel as a dominant theme, even though the chronicler is writing during a time when you only have this little mini kingdom. We also see the role of the dual leadership of the king and the priest. Next point, underscoring the central role of the Levites is that this kingdom is a priestly kingdom. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. And uh, Scott Hahn has written a book on Chronicles, um, The Kingdom of God as Liturgical Empire. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite books on Chronicles. The Kingdom of God as Liturgical Empire. If you want to have one easy-to-read book, uh, this is it on Chronicles. All right. A couple of other things to mention as we think of these opening chapters is that the chronicler is wanting God's people to understand their calling to be a blessing to the nations. Multi-ethnic. To understand their identity. But he's not going back. He's not looking at their immediate circumstances He's going back to the biblical story. And uh, notice here that you have how many verses to do with the contemporary context. 1 Chronicles chapter 9 talks about the exile. So that's contemporary, that chapter, and a few verses at the end. But otherwise, the whole narrative is going back to retell Israel's story. And I want to suggest for us where we are in this season of the church that we need to be going back to our roots, not just looking that way in front of us and around us, but we need to be looking at our history to understand who we are, because I think we've lost it. Uh, we have a new president starting at uh, Gordon Conwell, Scott Sunquist, 
which we're really delighted. He's um, uh, president-elect. I don't know if that's an announcement to some of you, but he's been there for a while. So, um, But one of the things he's doing is reading the founding documents to understand the identity, to know where you're going. You need to know who you are. The chronicler is wanting them to get a vision of what's ahead, but he's doing it by going back to the biblical story. Uh, I think about that. We have our uh, two sons who are now 18 and 20. Uh, we, um, they moved in, in with us when they were seven and eight. Uh, they were in foster care for about um, all of their life, 10 different foster homes, brothers, and then moved in with us. And one of the things that we have done over the years is tell stories of origin. Because in order for them to, to know where they're headed, they have to know where they've come from. And it's ironic, in a season of the church where we're not quite sure where we're headed, it is also accompanied with biblical literacy, illiteracy. Right? Because we've lost our story. And we've lost the God who is the redeeming God of the story, especially the Old Testament. And I know I speak in churches... Uh, all over the place and how often I hear people say, well, I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. And I think you don't know him. And I think the chronicler could have said, oh, this is pitiful state that we're in. Persians are ruling. I don't think there's much... I don't think there's much we can do right now. Let's just wait till the dark ages are over. Let's just wait. Hunker down a bit. Teach our kids. Let's wait till it's over. This guy loves the word of God. He loves it. How many times he goes back to Moses. And as I have labored through Chronicles... I think this guy has labored for years and years and years. And we can't even read it. A.W. <laughs> Tozer said, if we lose our concept of God, knowledge of the holy, we're in trouble. We've got to find our concept of God, and I think we find it by doing exactly what the chronicler is doing, retelling the story of Israel. Uh, there's a great little book, The Real American Dream. I don't, know, I, I don't know if I ever mentioned it last time or not. It's just one of my favorite, if you haven't bought it, by um, Andrew Del Bunco. A Meditation on Hope. Profound, profound book. And he runs through the history of uh, America in three stages. Um, and his first is God, nation. And he talks about we had hope in God as a, as a nation and then we lost hope in God. We had hope in the nation and government and then we lost hope in the government. So I may be feeling amen to that. But <laughs> And then he says... Where we are now is the selves at the center. We've lost the narrative, a broader narrative. And he says, we're kind of stuck. And this is what he says. And he talks about Tocqueville, who, who um, in the 1830s said, there is a strange melancholy in the midst of abundance. And, he, and then Del Banco says, this has special salience today. Because while we have gotten very good at deconstructing old stories, the religion that was the subject of my first chapter, which was this, and was one such story, the nationalism that was the subject of the second chapter was another. When it comes to telling new ones, we are blocked. 
Here we arrive at the root of our postmodern melancholy. We live in an age of unprecedented wealth, but in the realm of narrative and symbol, we are deprived. And so the ache for meaning goes unrelieved. I think the story, books of Chronicles, are reminding us, and I think God wants to remind us, that this is not the time to retreat and hope somehow things get better. This is the time to learn Hebrew, to learn Greek, send our kids to seminary, pick up our Christian education, teach the Bible in the churches. Because that's where we're going to find our identity and that's where we find our meaning and purpose going forward by looking back. And so um, as we start to look at this story, we're going to see that the chronicler is also telling the story for his contemporaries and for his age. So he is wonderful things when you look at how he uses Samuel and Kings and you see some of the modifications, some of the name changes, some of the new theology that he brings in. He is absolutely making the message appropriate and for his contemporaries, but he is going back to the old stories and retelling them as central for their identity. Uh, Jeff Arthurs has just written a book uh, called Preaching as Remembering. Preaching as Remembering. Uh, I think it's won one of the Christianity Today Award. And his point is the central role of preaching to remember the stories of old. Because if we forget the stories, we will lose our identity as the people of God. So, uh, lots of things to be encouraged with as we start to look at the book of Chronicles. And I'm going I'm to do the next five or seven minutes. Uh, let's, if we would like to, if we want to have any questions for two or three minutes, and then I'm going to just do a couple of things with Saul to move us into David. Any one or two questions? Yeah. Yes, good. And since Ezra is famous for going in the opposite direction. Very, very interesting. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, very interesting. So, and one of the, that's one of the reasons why people think, scholars used to think Ezra was the same author. That's one of the reasons why they say um, uh, that they're not the same author, because of their different theologies. There's several of them, and that's one of them. Um, there, do, there does seem to be some indication, at least in um, Malachi and Nehemiah, that you have some idolatry going on. There are hints of it. Um, I think Malachi has, you have married a strange god, and Nehemiah has some hints of it. Um, so that may be what's behind it. That may be what's some of it behind it with the whole Ezra. Um, but I'm not sure that it's a great question. I have a very good friend of mine who's working on an Ezra commentary. So it's a great question. So that's, that, but I do think, um, uh, of course, you have the mixed marriage, the alliance piece is not a good thing, like with Solomon and so forth, uh, where he marries Egypt. I think that's negative, Pharaoh's daughter. Um, but uh, but you, the, the, we also have, of course, with Ruth the Moabitess. So it may be part of that whole origin of their story, going back to it. Um, but I'm not 100% certain. It's a great question. Great question. Yep. The phrase, all Israel. In oh. Romans 9 through 11. Oh, I walked into that, didn't Paul I? Paul picks <laughs> it up. Any relationship? Is Paul... Looking at the chronicle or, yeah, and looking a, at that inclusive all Israel, and he doesn't mean every such, single last one. That's such a great question. That is such a great question. I wish I had thought of it, but I didn't. But um, because it depends, of course, how you interpret the all Israel. I interpret all Israel as being both Jew and Gentile in terms of the Jewish tree and then the um, Gentiles being grafted in. 
Um, I think the all Israel term, um, it would be a great, great study actually. I think all Israel is not pure ethnic Israel. So it's all, and we're going to look at it, it's all the assembled people that come and that the term kahal for assembly, when all Israel assembles, um, Greek, um, that's where we get ecclesia, the assembled people of God, um, which is foreigners as well. Foreigners get invited to Passover, so it would be a, that would fit a broader category for all Israel. Great question. How do you know uh, Judah's all ethnic? It's, uh, is that the names you saw in the genealogies? So how do we know? Judah's ethnic. You said it's ethnic. So the ethnic diversity? Yes. Yes. So in the, in the genealogy of the tribe of Judah, this one guy, and there's a couple of others that have looked at commentaries, is that the genealogy is intentionally highlighting when people within the genealogy marry foreigners. It's, it's the most diverse out of all of it. It really is fascinating. And if you think of Judah marrying a Canaanite woman, you think of Ruth the Moabitess, right? So there's, we, they're the big ones we already know about. But he's done work in this. And if you go through it, you're like, oh my gosh, there's Ishmaelites in there and there's Moabites. So... Um, and scholars have picked up, yeah, this is a theology of the kingdom that's multi-ethnic, and think about it, of course, like, the genealogies go back to Adam, to, to Abraham. What's Abraham's name mean? Father of many nations. Multi-ethnic was the plan, Genesis 17. So it may be part of that fulfillment. There's not the direct line, he doesn't quote somehow the promise, but there's a theology of the multi-ethnic, which is very interesting when you're under Persians. Sometimes people want to regroup and become more ethnically separate, but he's got a vision of the ethnic diversity within the tribe of Judah. Yep. All right. I'm going to, we've got just a couple of minutes, and I'm going to take them. <laughs> 1 Chronicles chapter 10 we are going to talk about King David tomorrow morning. Just as we think about, we've got chapter 9, the genealogies finish, and then we have the list of all those who go back to Jerusalem. And in chapter 10, you have one chapter, um, 23 chapters about Saul in 1 Samuel, one chapter in the life in Chronicles that it is Saul's death that's going to usher in the movement of God for the setting up of the kingdom of David. And we're told in verse 13 of chapter 10, Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord that term trespass is going to be another key word to help us unpack what's going on in Chronicles. One chapter to do with the death of Saul because not only of his trespass, but because he asked counsel of a spirit medium, making or seeking it, and he did not inquire of the Lord Therefore, God killed him and turned the kingdom to David. So the Davidic kingdom, rise of David, is going to start in chapter 11. So Saul, one chapter about Saul, 23 chapters about him in Samuel. His death is mentioned and his death is going to usher in the movement for David to become king. This is going to be in the hand of God. And as we pick up the story of David tomorrow morning, we're going to see that during there's a couple of flashbacks that go back to his early life when he was struggling. And we're going to see God's help 
with David in the midst of it as he sends people to come and help him. So, hey, we got through the genealogies. That's the most difficult part, right, of Chronicles. So, what do we got genealogies? We start off with Adam. The whole book ends to Chronicles. Eight chapters and then the return from exile. So, these chapters, we have multi-ethnic Judah. Multi-ethnic Judah. We have all the tribes being represented, all Israel. We have an emphasis on the priestly tribe and the tribe of Levi that's going to give us some insight as we start. It's a kingdom of priests. This is a sacred kingdom. And we've emphasized that you've got to, in order to know where you're headed, you've got to know where you come from. Story. Let me close this in word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for your hand upon the chronicler. And Lord, that you have used him and his diligence to study the history of Israel and to give us a record of it because of what you want to say to us. We thank you for that. We thank you even for these genealogies because, Father, you have promised that you would raise up the seed of David. And we thank you for whoever this chronicle is, that he knew it that you put it upon him to write these genealogies as a record of your saving purposes. And so we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.